Hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm the RUF campus minister here at Trinity. Really glad that y'all are with us uh, tonight. If you got a Bible, you can open it to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first two verses again, just by way of reminder, and then at verse 7. Uh, if you have not been with us, if this is your first week with us this semester, we are studying the Ten Commandments together uh, during our large group uh, time. And the reason that I've been putting in front of you every week that we've been studying these is partially their summary of how God has designed us to live. Uh, that's what he's told us in Scripture, that this is his law is how he has designed us to live. This is the way we um, are made to flourish. We go, if we go this way, we go with the grain of how we are created uh, to live. Uh, and I also have been saying every week that they, one of the common misconceptions is that the Ten Commandments are given to us as a way, as, as a list of boxes to check. You keep these, you do the good things, you get to go to the good place when you die. And the context, which we're going to read again of the Ten Commandments, reminds us that that's actually not true. The Ten Commandments are given not as a way for us to be saved, because remember, God has already delivered Israel from slavery when he gives them to them. He reminds them, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery but as a way to live as saved people. That's what the Ten Commandments are. How do you stay free? Now that you're out of slavery, how do you keep from going back in? Uh, these are the commands that were given. I heard a pastor illustrate this recently from a movie that I thought was really helpful. He was talking about um, a movie based on an E.M. Forrester novel called A Room with a View. I don't know if you've seen this. It's an older movie. Helena Bonham Carter plays this younger woman who is engaged to this one man but has met this other man who is far more interesting. And that's kind of the, the tension of the whole movie. And at some point, there are these older women who are looking at her, kind of judgy, and they're commenting <laughs> on how she doesn't act like a woman who is in love, talking about her relationship with her fiancé. She doesn't act like a woman. She doesn't look like a woman who is in love. Uh, there's something about us that you can tell uh, what we're in love with. You can tell when we are really committed to something and the Ten Commandments are constantly putting, uh, putting in front of us the question of, what do we love? Are we people who love our God? Um, do we look like people who are in love with Him? Do we follow uh, the commands that He's given us as ways to stay free? So these are the commands that keep to help us uh, stay in right relationship with the God who saved us, the God who has moved towards us in His affection. We keep them not to get something from them, but out of gratitude for the fact that in Jesus, He's already given us everything. So that brings us to our third commandment tonight. The first commandment told us which God we're to worship. Yahweh, we're not to have any other gods but Him. He doesn't want to share us with anything or anyone else. The second commandment told us how He wants to be worshipped. That God, like us, wants to be loved in a particular way. Uh, and He wants to be respected and worshipped in that way. And now we come to the third commandment, which upon first viewing seems to be a major step down as far as significance goes. You can kind of understand why he would start with the first two. Those seem kind of big. But then we get to the third one, and he says, don't take my name in vain, or don't use my name lightly. And it's tempting to think, really? Like, that's number three on the list? Essentially, like, don't curse with God's name? That's how it's often, uh, how this commandment's often considered. But if you've been with us, we've already established this semester, with each of these commands, there's always more than meets the eye. They always run much deeper than we think. Remember, Jesus unpacks the commandment forbidding adultery by telling us that if we even look at someone lustfully, that we've broken that commandment. So clearly that runs really deep, and all of the other commandments do as well, including uh, this one. So in the same way, this third commandment has more depth 
uh, than just what we say with our mouths. This has more application than just what words you use and how you talk about God, though it does have something to do with that as well. So tonight we're going to look at the meaning of God's name, the meaning of the name, how not to use it, how to use it. Really simple. Meaning of the name, how not to use it, and then how to use it. So let me pray for us, and then we will look at God's word uh, together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your uh, holy and inspired word. Uh, we thank you for your promise that it does not return to you void. Whenever it goes out, it always accomplishes whatever purpose that you have for it. And so I don't know what that is tonight, God, but whatever it is, I pray that you would keep that promise to us. That you accomplish your purposes through your words. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This is Exodus 20, looking at the first two verses and then verse 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You, oh, we're skipping those, sorry. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then the grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Um, have you ever had to name something? Anyone ever had to pick out a name for someone or something else? Maybe a household pet when you were growing up? Maybe you're one of those fun people who names your car, right? When you got that, you gave your car a name. Naming something's a really hard process, right? Because it's not just about whether a name sounds good, whether you just like the way it sounds coming out of your mouth. Names have to fit. It's got to fit the thing, right? There are certain cars that are just, they're not Eric's. You can tell. There's just not going to be their name. Names have to fit the car. Names represent more than just a label. They carry some kind of weight with them. One of the really, um, this is the only way I can think of to prove this to you guys. If you're the kind of person who would like to have children one day, one of the fun things to do is to think about what you might name these little buddies, right? What, what are some names that we could come up with? And what's funny is that if you've ever done that exercise, you've come across this interesting reality. There are certain names that you just don't like. There are certain names that you are not down with. Uh, it's really funny when Mary and I were trying to decide what to name Cooper when he was when Mary was first pregnant. And we had not decided on a name yet. We found out that he was going to be a boy, and so we were trying to think through. My name is Wilson Joseph Nettleton the Fourth. That is my legal name. So then, yeah, that's exactly right. The question was like, do we name him Wilson Joseph Nettleton the Fifth? Is he a pope? I don't know what that. I don't know where you stop at that point. It feels like I'm just passing the burden on to him when when and if he ever has. A son. So we decided he would just be Calvin Cooper Nettleton the first. He gets to be his own, his own man. I know, right? We thought that too. Thank you. That's very validating. But also as we were going through that process, and if you've ever thought about names for maybe future theoretical children for you, you realize there are just certain names that are out of bounds, like certain names that you're not going to do, and you really don't like those names. And with a little bit of investigation, you can figure out why you don't like these names. You'll realize the reason that you don't like that name is because someone who has that name is on your bad list, right? You have a person in your life that you do not like that has that name, and they've ruined that name for you. That's what has happened to you. They are an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or someone who picked on you in middle school. Whatever it is, when you hear that name, you think of that person and everything that they represent. And in your world, that thing and everything that it represents is negative. You might meet a million nice Dennises, right? Someone named Dennis who's really nice. You are never naming your son Dennis. 
Does anyone name Dennis here? That would be really fun. I just picked that at random. Okay, good. We're safe. <laughs> You're never going to name your son Dennis because of the one Dennis who roasted you on the school bus, right? That's like, that name is just going to be out of bounds because you hate that. It represents that for you. That name is forever ruined. We see this on a broader level just with like famous villains, right? No one names their kid Adolf anymore. That's kind of, Hitler kind of ruined that one. That one's gone. We do this with all kinds of names. There are names that just have terrible associations, so we get in our cultural moment that names have some significance, right? We, we understand that names carry more than just this label mentality. But we truly don't understand how significant they were in the Hebrew culture. How significant they were in the Old Testament. For us, names are closer to labels. They're something that we have, but they're not something that we are. And for the Hebrews, it was far closer to that. It was more than just a label that they had. It was something that they were. The name was inseparable from the person. Proverbs 22, verse 1, and I put this on your handout as I've been putting most of the scriptures that I've been quoting uh, throughout the semester, I'm just putting on the handout every week. And this one's on there as well. It tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. That's the Hebrew mindset about a name. If you can choose between money or a good name and everything that comes with it, you go with the name. Take the reputation. And the reason is because of that, because of that connection, Names expressed a person's inward identity and their reputation, the sum total of their character, which I think helps us understand what God is getting at when he tells us that we are not to take his name in vain, that his name has a connection to his character. It is tied to who he is. When we are using his name, we're referring to the essence of, of his divine being, of who God really truly is. And so that's the meaning of the name. Names in the Old Testament, in the Bible in particular, but God's name, most of all, has special significance. So how do we not use it? I said last week is just an interpretive principle for the Ten Commandments. Every single one of these has a positive and a negative element. So every time, this is basically the way all commands work, right? Anytime you're forbidden from something, you're kind of encouraged to do something else. Or when you're encouraged to do something, the opposite is off limits. And in this case... What is forbidden to us? How are we not supposed to use God's name? What does it actually even mean to take God's name in vain? Vain, that word vanity just refers to emptiness. To take God's name in vain is just to use it as if it's weightless, to use it lightly. So what are some of the ways we see in Scripture that God's name is used lightly? And how does that connect with how we might be using God's name lightly? Um, I think one of the obvious ways in curses, uh, this is kind of the one that everyone thinks of when they think of the third commandment, the most obvious way that we violate this one, is the way that we use God's names in curses or just in flippant language. While this commandment goes way, way deeper than that surface level, uh, don't use God's name that way, it does include that. I think it does. I think it does include being careful with how we actually talk about God and use his name in our everyday language. So using, how might that apply to us? Using Jesus Christ as an exclamation. Right? Jesus Christ. You hear people say that all the time. Saying, I swear to God, to voice frustration. You can think of others, right? I don't have to go through the whole list. I think the third commandment is saying to do that is to use God's name lightly. And people often push back on this by saying, like, oh, come on, Will. Like, that's, it's an expression. Right? It's just an expression. I didn't mean anything by it which is actually the commandment's whole point. That's exactly the point. You didn't mean anything by it. You didn't mean anything by it. 
And God's name means something. God's name has weight. To use it and not mean anything by it is, by definition, to treat it lightly. To treat it as if it is inconsequential. It is to speak of God as if he doesn't matter or doesn't really exist or doesn't care. And this is especially uh, heinous in light of what he said about his name. We talked about this in the first couple of weeks, but the name he gives to Israel is Yahweh. The Hebrew word that just, we've talked about it before, it means I am. I am who I am, or I am the one who is. To treat God's name lightly is to treat him like he is the one who is not. Like he is the one who does not exist. The one who does not Okay, so that's one way we see it in Scripture, curses. That's kind of a surface-level reading. There's actually some other interesting ones in Scripture that I think have some fun, uh, modern, not fun, that's a bad word, have some interesting parallels to how we also break the commandment. Another one that we see throughout the Old Testament is uh, sorcery and divination. No one saw us going there tonight, and we are. (laughs) Another way we see God's name used lightly in the Bible is through that. One thing that's forbidden is this idea of sorcery or divination. In an ancient Near Eastern context, this was far more frequent than it is in our day, although there's a little bit of a comeback happening um, on some of this stuff. But throughout the Bible, all kinds of people try to use magic, try to use different things, try to use God's name to gain power over the future in some way or another. And sorcery, I know that sounds silly to most of us. Most of us are like, yeah, not, not my problem, not really doing any of that other than like the Harry Potter app that I played for a little while because I thought it was going to be as cool as Pokemon Go, and it wasn't. Uh, Did anyone else do that? I downloaded it for one minute and was like, this is disappointing. (laughs) Anyway, so you're not tempted to sorcery, but we have our own ways of doing the same thing, do we not? Because at the heart of what's going on in those accounts in Scripture is trying to control the future, trying to get something from God, trying to make something happen the way that we want it to happen rather than submitting uh, to his will. We often try to use God to get what we want. I think this is part of why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray to God Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Because we are so prone to pray, my will be done. Here's what I want. Here's the list of things that I'd like you to do for me. It's not to say that you shouldn't pray for those things, by the way. That's not a bad thing, to pray for what you want, things that are not sinful, of course. God invites us to do that. Jesus tells us that we have not because we ask not. He compares himself to a father who, if his son asks for a piece of food, is not going to get a rock. God delights to hear from us. He wants to hear about what we want. But when that's all we ever pray for, when prayer just becomes a laundry list of our wants, we may be using God's name lightly. We aren't praying to connect with God. We're praying to get things from him. And that's it. One of the best ways to test whether you are using God's name lightly in prayer is to see how you respond when he tells you no. If you ask for something from God and he tells you no to that thing, um, whether that just that door gets shut or whatever it may be, what do you do then? How do you respond to him? Do you still go to him in prayer? Do you still thank him that he's good and trust that he has plans that you may not understand yet? Do you still talk to him? Are you able to echo Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember the night before Jesus is going to the cross to die, he's in the garden. And he has this moment where he asks God, if there's another way to do this, let's do it that way. If there's any other way, that's what Jesus wants. If I don't have to go to the cross, I don't want to. Let's do it another way. And he finishes that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Are you able to go to God in prayer like that, to ask for what you want, and then hold it with an open hand? 
and to trust God, this is what I'm asking for. Nevertheless, you're, not my will, but your will be done. Um, God has never promised to give us everything that we want. It's a hard truth. You'll not find that anywhere in Scripture. God has never promised to give us everything that we want. In fact, we see in Scripture God telling us the opposite in many cases. Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble. He invites us to take up our cross, this instrument of death, and to come follow him. The Christian life is a life of suffering. But it is suffering for a purpose. Because it is through death that we get to resurrection. It is through that suffering that we find redemption. Can you receive that no from God's hand? If not, then it's possible that we're, that we're using his name in prayer to get what I want. And that, at the end of it, that's just manipulation. We get to a certain point where all we're doing is manipulating God, and that, I think, too, would be a violation of the third commandment, a way not to use God's name. One last one that we see in Scripture over and over again throughout the Old Testament and a couple places in the New is false prophecy. People that come and try to prophesy, uh, but they're prophesying false things. Um, the prophets in the Old Testament are God's messengers, and their message was always accompanied with a, thus saith the Lord. That's how they finished their um, prophecies. They had a word that they had received from God, and they brought it to the people. And that meant that the people were supposed to take their words as the very words of God, and of course to obey them. So you can imagine people who might want to take that and try to use it for their own advantage. There were lots of people who would attempt to use God's name to advance their own agenda or to get people to do what they wanted them to do. They would say, thus saith the Lord, about things that God had actually not told them that he was saying. We see this all throughout history, all kinds of examples down throughout history. God's name has been used to endorse all kinds of heinous things, everything from the Crusades down to the slave trade, down to things we could all list today, all sorts of things that God has not endorsed in his word. And people have taken it and said that God is for this thing. On a smaller level, you hear a similar thing all the time, I think, in Christian circles. You'll often hear people say things like this. God told me to do X. I feel like the Lord is leading me to do blank. Again, there's a place for that language. It's not that there's not an internal leading. It's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us in some ways. There's just what's, how Scripture tells us that that works. Um, God does tell us and lead us to do all sorts of things in His Word. He has spoken to us through His Scriptures. But I think we start using God's name lightly when we say that God told us to do things that we have no scriptural basis for. Whenever we start going to say that God has told us to do things that we, don't, we can't find in scripture, we're taking God's name lightly. My uh, youth minister, when I was growing up, uh, had this story about he was dating this girl in college, and she told him, God told me that we're supposed to get married. Straight, they've been dating for like two weeks. God told me that we are supposed to get married. And he was, his response was really funny to me because he was like, that's so weird because he did not tell me that. Like he did not, you would think he would communicate that to both of us, like just to make it more efficient. But I didn't hear that from him, right? People do this kind of thing all the time. Like God told me that we need to break up because they actually don't want to do the hard work of being like, I don't like you anymore. Or I don't, I want, there's somebody else or whatever. So it all of a sudden it becomes God's fault that we're not supposed to be in a relationship anymore, right? Which is so much more freighted and messed up. Right? It's not me that doesn't like you, it's God that doesn't like you. That's why we're breaking up. You see what I'm getting at. Like, I'm joking, but we get to a place where God's name is just a stand-in for a thing that we need. 
We're using God as our errand boy to do our work, our dirty work for us at the end of the day. What's the problem with the God told me X or God is leading me to do X um, when it's not found in Scripture? I think the problem is that it's always subjective. Because there aren't Bible verses that say, you need to break up with Sarah and take that summer internship. Right? That's not, you're not going to find that in the Bible. The problem with I feel like God is saying X when X is not something that he has said in his word is that God never promised that he would give us such private conversations where he would tell us everything we're supposed to do in life. Everything that we're supposed to do in every single situation. That you were going to hear this audible voice being like, don't take that class. Like, God has not promised that to us. What has he promised us? Does God speak to us? Yeah, I hope so. I believe so. I think he's done it in this book. That's what this book claims to be. Claims to be God's revelation, his revealing of himself to us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that in the old days he spoke by the prophets, and in these final days he's spoken by his son, which I take to be a shorthand reference to the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is where God has spoken, in the old prophets and through his son Jesus. This is where we believe that God has spoken to us. I get good questions from you guys all the time when I get lunch. Pause for a brief commercial. This is my full-time job. I love getting together with you. If you ever want to get together and talk about anything, I would love to do that. My number's on the handout. Feel free to text me. My calendar is, you can find it in the Instagram link. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I really would love to do that if you ever want to. Okay, commercial over. One of the things that you guys say to me regularly at these lunches is, and I think this is an awesome question, when I like think through something, like I think, oh, that's a good idea, or I should do blank, how do I know if that's like God telling me to do that, or if that's just like my brain? It's a really good question, right? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. The only place we believe for sure that God has spoken to us is in this book. That's what Christians have said for for over 2,000 years now. This is what we believe, that God has spoken here. And so to say God told me X about something that's not here or that wouldn't be confirmed here is to take his name lightly. It's to take his name in vain. And that, at worst is to make God into your errand boy, to make God into the one who does your dirty work for you, um, who, the one whom you are manipulating in various ways. At worst. The good news is that God has placed a lot of wisdom in this word, a lot of wisdom in this book, and much of it's going to help you learn how to make those big life decisions. That's what we're trying to get at when we ask these questions. What's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? And there's a ton in here to help you with that. It can't make the decision for you. It won't tell you exactly what door to walk through, but it will help you with stuff like who am I supposed to marry? What do I do for a career? Where should I live? How should I handle this situation? But if you want a Christian magic eight ball, God does not give you that. That doesn't exist. Because God has given you something better. He's given you himself. In trusting him, you find that he has you through the ups and downs of life, even when you make the wrong decision, which we do all the time. Even when we make a bad call or life goes against us in some way we couldn't have foreseen, God says he will be with us. I love the way Psalm 23 phrases it. The Lord is our shepherd, right? Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he is with us. 
God has not promised to give you an answer for every single one of those questions. He's just promised that he will be there. He will be there with you. Okay, so those are some ways not to use it. What is the positive side of the command? How should we use it? What are we supposed to do? If we're forbidden from using God's name lightly, the alternative is to give it its proper weight. Um, the Bible often uses the word glorify. That's kind of a Christian-y word, right? Glorify or glory. We're supposed to glorify God. And glory, the Hebrew word for that just means heavy. It's just heavy. We're supposed to make God's name heavy. Isn't that interesting? To glorify God's name is to give it weight, to fill it out. And I think to do that means that we take God's name seriously. We ought to do that in how we actually talk to and about God, right? What kind of language we use. Jesus opens the Lord's Prayer by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is an old school word that just means to consecrate, to set apart for a sacred purpose. Jesus starts his prayer that way to say, this is how we want to use your name. We want your name to be sacred. We want to preserve it for worship and for praise. I don't want it to be an exclamation. I don't want it to use it lightly. I don't want to use it as a curse word. When I'm using it, I want it to be full of meaning and purpose. I want it to be about worship. But of course, it goes deeper than that as well. To say that we're followers of God and then to live as if we are not is also to take his name lightly. To call yourself a Christian and then to live in a way that doesn't look anything like a Christian, to have people look and say, it certainly doesn't look like they're in love, that is to take God's name lightly. That's to not give it the proper weight. I think one of the scariest expressions of this as a, as a pastor uh, for me is in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. It's on the back of your sheet. Jesus talks about people who take his name but don't actually know him. He talks about this scene at the end of time where there's going to be this judgment for how we've lived. And this is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. These people who are saying, Lord, Lord, have correct doctrine. They know what to call him, Lord, Lord. That's God's covenant name. They know that Jesus is God. They believe the right things. And they also do the right stuff. That's what they're, that's what they're complaining to him about. Lord, we prophesy in your name. So we preach and teach God's word. We're Bible study leaders, Lord. They cast out demons in his name. I don't do that. That's never happened, right? They do mighty works in his name. This is fruitful and effective ministry. So these are people who believe the right stuff and do the right stuff, quote unquote. But on the day of judgment, what does Jesus say to them? I don't, I never knew you. I don't know you. How can Jesus say that? I think it's because there is a way to have a, a fake relationship with Jesus. The relationship with him was not real. His name was on their lips, but it was never in their heart. There's a way to talk about Jesus a lot without ever actually having a very real relationship with him. Jesus becomes a means to an end for them, not the end in himself. They weren't after Jesus. They were after what they felt that Jesus could get them or give them. Okay, so how do we avoid that fate? It's scary, right? Didn't come here on Monday night at 9 p.m. for that. What's, is there not good news for us? 
How do we avoid the, that fate? Do we just do better, try harder? How do we address the weightlessness of God in our hearts? If you've been to RUF, you know that the do better, try harder is my favorite um, punching bag, right? Because that doesn't work. It's like New Year's resolutions. We never keep them. Just saying like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take God more seriously. Dagnabbit. Right? That's, I'm going to do it. That doesn't work. We've tried that so many times. So what do we do? How do we address the weightlessness of God in our hearts? I think we have to remember that on the cross, Jesus treated you as if you had weight. Jesus treated you as if you supremely matter to him. In Isaiah 49, verse 16, God tells his people, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. He tells his people, I've written your name, on, I've carved your name into my hands. We sometimes sing the hymn here at RUF, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. And I love the way it takes that verse from Isaiah and weaves it into the hymn. Listen to, these are just the first two stanzas of that hymn. I'm just going to read them to you really quick. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. It is only as you grasp how much you matter to God that he will begin to matter to you. It is only as you grasp how much you matter to him that he will begin to matter to you. How much do you matter to God? You mattered so much that Jesus went to the cross for you. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 tells us that after he rose from the dead, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the invitation of the third commandment is not just to stop cussing. The invitation is to honor the name of the one who said that your name is written on his hands. That he cares about you. That he does not take your name lightly on his lips. And so therefore he invites you to treat him the same in response. That is true for you tonight if you've never believed this. And that is true if you've lived your whole life trying really hard to believe it and sucking at it. And it's true for you tonight if you don't even know why you're here. The God of the universe knows your name. It is written on his hands, and he is inviting you to love him back. Amen. That's the invitation for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. God in heaven, we praise you for your great name. That you are the one who is, the one who has always been, who will always be. The God who invites us into true relationship uh, on the terms that you will bridge the gap and have bridged the gap in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to use your name with the proper weight. Would you help us to worship you and praise you and honor you as we ought to? God, would you help us to live as people who really are in love with you? And for those of us who are not yet there, God, I pray that you would continue to impress uh, upon us just how deeply you love us. So much so that you gave up your own life. That you, Jesus, stepped down from your throne and took on flesh and lived a life that we could not live and died our death on the cross and rose again from the dead that we might be yours. Our name mattered to you. And so, God, would you help your name to matter to us? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Let's stay in this thing. 